Welcome to WVU's Climate Conversations podcast. These episodes are student projects from the Fall 2019 Honors Book Club under the same title. My name is Katherine Williamson. I'm a teaching professor of physics and astronomy, and this book club was inspired by a TED Talk by climate scientist Katherine Hayhoe. She says that the most important thing you can do to fight climate change is to talk about it. Therefore, the aim of each Climate Conversation episode is to do just that, to talk about an aspect of climate change and to keep the conversation going. Hello, my name is Court Patterson. I am joined by Jesse and Catherine today, and I am a history major, and I am in a course called Climate Conversations, and we're here to talk about the Great Depression and the Irish potato famine today. Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jesse Hogben. I am a history, Italian studies, and religious studies triple major with a minor in medieval and renaissance studies, and I'm also the president of Phi Alpha Theta and the History Club here on campus. That's impressive. <laughs> So uh, I guess to start out the conversation, let's talk big picture about the uh, Dust Bowl then. Okay, so the Dust Bowl was something that happened around the Great Depression era, and what it was was that many people started moving out west because there was this promise that there was going to be an amazing agricultural center of the world. It was going to be the breadbasket of not just America, but the entire world. There were signs advertising for you to move out west, claiming that the watermelons were the size of cars, and they had photographic evidence to prove it. And it was going to be this great movement of people, and a lot of people did choose to go out west. The farming practices that they used included um, digging up the ground and um, just doing it in straight lines right across. Mm -hmm. And as you uh, always typically imagine, the Midwest, it's very, and and the um, center of America is that it's very, very flat. So when you are there and you just dig straight into the ground and you don't terrace in any way, the topsoil can blow off. So combining poor agricultural practices, although not technically at the fault of the farmers, they didn't know that this was going to be such a big problem, and uh, um, not economic, I'm sorry, environmental issues that were occurring at the same time, it led to these great movements of wind that just blew off the topsoil and uh, quite literally some places in Texas and Oklahoma would go dark for literally days uh, with dust stirring around and it would kill the crops and it would kill um, people as well as long with the the animals but there was something called dust pneumonia that little kids would get from just inhaling too much too much dirt. So it was an environmental catastrophe that was occurring at the same time as an economic downturn. Although the Dust Bowl and these issues began before the Great Depression, so it's usually seen as one of the things that's leading up to it. Thank you. That was really helpful to me. Yeah, and also that actually gives me another question on top of that. Would you say that since this is very much man-made to ignorance, is what you would say, but also the fact that the mechanized agricultural industry was sort of gaining ground at the same time. Do you think that had something to contribute to that, or was these pra- were these practices regardless of that? Well, I think that this is the same issue that we're dealing with today with mm-hmm. our environmental problems, is that they began with these great innovations, and they were very helpful for people. I mean, if you think about... Uh, Everything that you hear about with the ozone layer and how it was depleted, it was at the fault of uh, Freon. And so at the time, this was seen as a great gift that benefited many people. It was in refrigerators and air conditioners. And that's the same thing that's going on in this period of time, is you're given this great opportunity. You can now buy these tools that make you able to grow 
so much food, which is going to help your family. And you're moving out there because you want to help your family. And these tools are not going to be beneficial for you in the long run, but because they haven't been around long enough for you to know that, you're going to make that mistake. Mm -hmm. It's not so much that the people and, and the farmers and the dust bowls are the villains. Uh, that's just a misunderstanding. But they're the victims and, the, and partially the cause of the problem at the same time, which is what we're dealing with right now mm -hmm. with climate change, is that we're both the victims and the causers of the problems. Yeah, it's hard to lose the irony on that as well. But it's also just interesting to see that innovation in general, when we look at the Dust Bowl and what happened there, and when we look at other innovations throughout history, such as the Industrial Revolution, there's a lot of side effects to that that we don't necessarily see right out of the start. We, it's long term. It takes time for that to become more obvious. Now, Court, I know that you wanted to talk about as well the Irish potato famine mm -hmm. and... Um, that's an issue that also deals with globalization as well, and it deals with mechanization, because when you talk about uh, the Colombian exchange, quote-unquote, uh, you're ending up talking about how diseases typically move from the West and, come, um, and then come to the New World um, and kill off uh, millions of people. But the fact is, is that most historians today think that the Irish potato famine was a disease that existed um, in the New World, quote-unquote, and moved to Ireland and then subsequently uh, had all these deaths occur. So it's really this issue of how the world is interacting with itself that really comes into play. And of course, when potatoes were brought to Ireland because they aren't native to there, they weren't thinking that this could cause a problem someday in the future. Mm -hmm. They were thinking this food can feed the masses. Yeah, it's the innovation that drives the initial interaction. And mm -hmm. then you don't, you don't necessarily know what's going to become of that. So just to place that in, in the modern context, how would we, now that we're more aware of these issues, when it comes to climate change, how do we deal with that? How does that? How do we react to that when it comes to, say, understanding the Dust Bowl, what happened there, and the Irish potato famine, which did create a lot of movement and migration and immigration? Well, as you know, uh, anyone who's paying attention to the news knows that uh, there's, immigration is contentious today. And the issue is, is that the people who are most hurt by famines often are the people that we try to keep out. Uh, from immigration processes. Uh, the same thing happened during the Irish potato famine. You saw that there was a narrowing of, uh, Im of Irish immigrants allowed into the United States. Uh, this wasn't, America wasn't the only place that the Irish went, but when you think about it uh, from a United States perspective, you often think about all these Irish immigrants coming here. Uh, but there was so much racism that was dealt with in the Irish potato famine that some people in Britain thought that it was Providence that brought the Irish potato famine, that they thought that it was similar to a blessing in disguise. And I just think that that's something really interesting that we have to pay attention to just because um, we deal with the same problems as people are dealing with famines and immigration crises that we think in the past we've never cut off people from coming here we have done it historically, and it's one of the things that we look uh, poorly upon ourselves. That makes me think about mm -hmm. uh, a scene in the book we read, Renewable, where uh, Eileen Flanagan, the author, is talking about the Irish potato famine and how mm -hmm. um, people would close their doors and eat in secrecy and even cut themselves off from their family members and because they didn't want 
people, like even their family asking them for food. Like they just kept it to their immediate family and Mm -hmm. cut off their cousins and brothers and sisters and so on. And that just really struck me as like the dire Mm -hmm. situation of it. Yeah, when you read anything that Mm -hmm. deals with it, or with both the Dust Bowl and the Irish potato famine, you really realize how how dire the times were and how desperate people can become. Yeah, I think that's a that's a common theme with a lot of crisis in general. Is we see this with say just the wildfires in California, or you know the suspected droughts in Texas, and there's ma- there's many other things that we can see we can talk about, and even not even just naturally occurring. We can talk man-made as well. The Syrian civil war has driven a lot of immigration, and I think it shouldn't be lost on the fact that when we talk about climate change that it's not necessarily just natural it's not necessarily just something that can occur as you know more wild weather or more unpredictable drought seasons or such like that i think sometimes it's important to recognize the man-made the artificial side of this that comes with it that the societal psychological reaction i think is what we're what we're trying to aim for what what do you think jesse Oh, I think that's a very good point. We also saw, um, we watched the um, the film, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, which is about a boy in uh, Malawi who ended up building a, a windmill so that he could pump water from the ground and help his family grow crops. But the famine that his village was experiencing was, I mean, so scary. People were stealing food from him and his mother while she had her baby in his arms and in her arms and what people really don't think about when they talk about global climate change is that the people who are going to be affected by it most if it continues the uh, with the way that we're treating it right now the people who are going to be hurt most are the least fortunate people on earth they are going to be the people who live in impoverished places in Africa and around the world but they're also going to be the impoverished people in America as well who are going to suffer uh, they are the people who suffer when there are food shortages. The most impoverished people in the Irish potato famine were the ones who suffered the most. They were the ones who died the most. And uh, although it was a problem felt throughout Ireland and global climate change is a problem that will be felt around the world, even by the wealthy, it is going to be felt most harshly and most cruelly by the, by the impoverished people. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that fact. I mean, I can even draw an example from our book we're referring to, Renewable, by Eileen Flanagan, where she talks about in more detail that you could it could be predicted that 180 million people in sub-Saharan Africa could die in the 21st century as a result of climate change, from famine and water shortages and conflicts and other things like shortage of food. And that statistic's striking because that is, you know, the entire Second World War the highest estimate places it at 150 million, so you were already eclipsing that just from talking about one continent, not, a, not a, let alone the other six that have people that have the, have the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So it's very, it's very much a, a scary situation if you, if you think about it in that term. And and, when, sorry. Oh yeah. Uh, when you think about it as an issue of uh, immigration and migration, like you're talking about with the Irish potato famine and the um, Dust Bowl, because following the Dust Bowl, a lot of people choose to to leave the uh, central part of the uh, United States and end up going out to California, uh, which is where you have great books like The Grapes of Wrath uh, written about. But there's going to be a need for migration if global climate change change continues as it is without anyone interfering in any kind of way. And the people who are going to be able to migrate are those with the most amount of privilege. And what makes it difficult is then 
you're not just talking about people suffering abroad, which is often a very difficult uh, way to explain to someone that people are suffering. You feel this distance from it, but there will be people suffering at home, and they aren't just going to be strangers. They're going to be people you went to college with. They're going to be your neighbors. They're going to be the least fortunate people on on earth. I mean, we can we can even go to the ex- we can go to the, to the topic of the wildfires in California, where thousands of people who are much like us uh, are losing their homes. And I mean, you imagine the people who are less fortunate, who are homeless, or who are stuck in these, you know, towns and and cities that are being overran with wildfires, are stuck in a much more precarious position because they can't flee. Yeah, and, and when you uh, see about it on the news, you see. Uh articles titled Harrison Ford's house burns down or Miley Cyrus's house is in danger because of the most recent uh, fires. You don't hear about the thousands of houses that have already been lost, the property, uh, the animals that have been lost, which for some people uh, make up their entire uh, livelihood. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, very bad in the sense that there's it's a lot worse than the new than news might let on when you see those sort of article titles, and it is a nod to what climate change is doing because the wildfire seasons are longer, and they're worse. I mean, we see uh, PG&E, I believe, is the power company mm-hmm. in California that has has been shutting down entire grids to try to prevent wildfires from occurring from sparks from their power lines. That's how serious this is getting. It's starting to affect corporations. It's starting to affect people's ability to receive electricity on a regular basis. So it's something that can become extreme very quickly, I think. Yeah. And then the reactions to things like this are, of course, always equally extreme, or they need to be, if you see it as an extreme issue. Like, when you are talking about the Dust Bowl, at the time, that was seen as an extreme issue on top of several other big national problems that are occurring. And often that's the only way that you can get big national change, is if everyone believes that it's a pressing issue. With the Dust Bowl, everyone knew that it was problematic and that there were farming problems not just in the midwest but nationwide that's why you have the aaa created but that leads to massive change in the united states the government puts restrictions on how many animals you can have in hope of bolstering the economy and uh, they give people uh, monetary rewards Mm -hmm. if they have within the certain quota which means that people who had say more pigs than the government wanted them to have just slaughtered all of their pigs instead of and so that they could receive this financial benefit because they needed that money the issue is is that this this was a massive change that occurred and the issue that is today is that not everyone sees global climate change as a pressing important national issue like people saw the dust bowl and the agricultural crisis in the 30s to be. Now we have, people aren't to the point where they realize that this is this pressing issue, like they saw the, uh, the Dust Bowl as a pressing issue back then. I think that also goes back to the to the other point we were making as well, is that I think the media and just the general public and uh, as a whole hasn't really recognized the seriousness of this issue because it doesn't affect them quite as much as what the Great Depression did for the ailing middle class in the 1930s. There's a stronger middle class now that isn't as readily affected, but the lower class, the the less fortunate, those who aren't able to own a home or necessarily have a a car or have multiple cars 
are the most affected. They're the people who have to deal with this on the brunt of this at the time, at this time. And I think until the, the larger middle class experiences this on a larger level, we aren't going to see that sort of reaction. At least that seems to be what is happening here. So, and I heard some things from what you said about, because my question that's been bubbling up is like, how do we get out of it? Like, how did we get out of the Dust Bowl? And like, how did the Irish potato famine like end, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, how do we, what lessons can we learn? It sounds like there was sort of widespread understanding of the issue and, and some government intervention. Do you think that those... I mean, is that what we need now? Is there Are there other things that are needed for moving out of this? What do you think? Well, when it came to the Dust Bowl, the changes that occurred had to be, uh, they, they were government mandated often. Uh, and what they did was they quite literally sent in people who were uh, to teach the farmers how to farm in a different way. Uh, they did not like this, but it was, and th that's a major issue is that often, even when you are in crisis, you don't want to be out there begging for help. And that's not how these people were always. There were associations of farmers that agreed that they were going to live and stick out the Dust Bowl because they believed that it was a momentary uh, environmental disaster and that it could just simply be waited out. Uh, but there needed to be uh, large changes made, and it didn't take one year. It took a lot of time. And uh, it's still something that they have to worry. You, you have to think about even today if you're planting uh, crops out Midwest, out in the Midwest. And uh, for the Irish potato famine, I believe that the disease that caused it is now dead. But Yeah, I believe the disease that they caused is now dead. But what's interesting about that is the fact that there are always new strains, there are always different mm -hmm. diseases that can cause this as well. And I think another good point that can be made about this is the fact that diseases in general can become very dangerous on a global level pretty quickly. I mean, the Spanish um, flu we can talk about at the end of the, of the First World War had killed, I think, something over 100 million people. And that was more than the entire Great War had killed in four years and had done in barely a year and a half. So it's just, the, I think this sort of global movement, this sort of globalization in a sense, has also sort of created these interactions with, between diseases, between people, and new strains as a result that can kill a lot of people. Well, Court, when you're talking about these things, it makes me think about how, like, humans are so innately afraid of diseases, and they'll pull out millions of examples of diseases that have, have killed people over the years. They'll bring up the Black Plague, and they'll, bl they'll bring up, like you the did, Spanish the, flu. the Spanish flu. And um, these are the things that we're really afraid of, and that's part of the reason why we're so fascinated with the Irish potato famine and it's also part of the reason why people perhaps aren't so interested in global climate change, because unlike disease where there's one clear answer, uh, the answer to global climate change is a multifaceted uh, question and answer scenario uh, where a lot of things have to be done, whereas for a disease you just have to find a cure. For this, it's going to be changes made for decades upon decades and lifestyle changes mostly for large corporations, but also for everyday people. Yeah, I, I think also about when it comes to diseases that the irony behind climate change being a multifaceted issue is that it can lead to increased disease. I mean, the return of old diseases as well. I mean, we see more measles outbreaks than we have in the last 
mean, three decades. We have, we're seeing other outbreaks of polio in Pakistan that haven't been seen since polio was eradicated. I mean, it, there's a lot of a lot of fear there, but I think also I think it's misunderstood fear. I think when we talk about climate change, it creates movement. People start moving around because they don't they can't live in a certain place anymore for their survival needs, so they feel like they have to flee. And I mean that that's particularly and particularly true for sub-Saharan Africa and just Africa in general. When we talk about conflicts, when we talk about famines and other issues of that sort. I mean, when you when you say that they feel as though they have to move. In a lot of these cases, uh, like the Dust Bowl and like the Irish potato famine, it, it wasn't just that they felt as though they needed to move. If they wanted to make sure that their family was safe, they had to move. But the issue was uh, access to these places. And, and whether or not you can move to a place where you will be safe, and uh, often moving to a place where you will be safe doesn't mean that you're moving to a place that you're going to be accepted. Yeah, I think that's that's a lot of um, the societal um, blowback when we talk about immigration, we talk about migration, and people who, who are trying to survive, who are coming either to the United States or anywhere in the Western world or anywhere else, who are fleeing famine, who are fleeing conflict, who are fleeing in other weather-related or hum- human-related issues, who don't feel welcome to where they're going to because of this. I mean, we see this with the migrant crisis from the Syrian civil war where we've had millions of Syrians and uh, Iraqi citizens and other nationalities who have fled. And a lot of them are stuck in Turkey because Greece and Hungary and other countries in the Balkans will not accept them. I'm trying to think right now, but uh, it's written by Charles Mann. It's either uh, 1491 or 1493. He wrote both of those. Um, He discusses this, like, myth that we have that Native Americans were this great-for-the-environment people, that they were just absolutely perfect for the environment, that they kept it pristine. Uh, When we're not talking about the fact that they practiced uh, slash-and-burn agriculture and that when English settlers arrived, they brought with them all these diseases that killed off so many of these people and forced them to migrate further further west to um, avoid this conflict with people who actively did not want them to be on the land, and that we actually see a temperature drop following the deaths of all of these Native Americans that typically people will just reference to as a strange phenomenon, but uh, Charles Mann seems to think that it's obviously a result of the loss of millions and millions of people who practiced a very unenvironmentally friendly version of agriculture. And again, while that's not that that wasn't the fault of these people who are practicing agriculture, it's still important to note that global climate change and the ability of the globe to change climate is very human related and is often very movement related. And the people who suffer most are those least fortunate people, because mm-hmm. as Native people have to move out west, they also have to change their uh, agricultural practices because of the change in the terrain. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting you bring that up, because that was also in another book we read, The Two-Mile Time Machine, mm-hmm. which is about the ice core yeah. samples mm-hmm. and you know the sort of geologic record of temperature and carbon dioxide concentrations. And 
you're you're right that and I did not know that before that book that the CO2 uh, and the temperature all dropped around 1492. <laughs> and I mean proportionately speaking millions of people during that time is a lot of the pers- is a very large percentage of the po- world population so that would have that would be a noticeable effect. Mm-hmm. And and with these changes in agricultural practices from migrating westward but also just from the Columbian Exchange where so many people were dying of these diseases for just being the first time they've ever been in contact with it. Yeah, that, and those those other books we read about the deep time, like the long-term mm-hmm. uh, historical record, there were definitely times, you know, even before we were homo sapiens where humanoids were, you know, we were just a couple bands making it a lo- making it work through mm-hmm. some really tough times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just interesting to kind of think back to that very, very deep time when things it has not been straightforward. We've always been kind of clawing our way. <laughs> yeah, especially because you often think of like uh, global climate change as like a now problem and it's something that humans are doing now. And it's often even brought into question. Like some people will say like, are humans even even affecting uh, how, how the globe's climate is? And you can just point to all of these historical um, issues where you're like, it changed here and here's an answer to possibly why. And... Uh, it, it demonstrates that humans clearly have an effect on the globe. Um, another example is uh, Genghis Khan. Uh, he he also has a fondness for killing millions of people. And, and there is a change in the global temperature uh, following his life. And I think that it's just very interesting that some people don't even know that there are historical examples of global climate change that are very human-motivated. Yeah, the, the third book we read was Earth in Human Hands, which talks about that we're you know in this mm-hmm. Anthropocene mm-hmm. where we're kind of driving the ship whether we want to or not or flying the plane whether we want to or not it's like, <laughs> it's like flying the plane without an instruction manual or any sort of idea what the controls do yeah is, is sort of the vibe I, I've gotten about that book and just with um, humanity's journey through earth and with earth in general mm-hmm. oh, that sounds very similar to a book called ishmael mm-hmm. i don't know if you've read it but it's a it similarly shares the plane metaphor where uh, humans essentially got into a plane and thought that if we flapped the wings hard enough we could make it stay up and we're just now realizing that no matter how hard you flap the wings on this plane no matter how fast you pedal we're headed down and we're to the point that we're too scared to do anything other than flap the wings and, and pedal uh, to see if it can make any change. And in a lot of our book club meetings this semester, we kind of like we kind of get into this into this point where we're like we're on a downward spiral. Like every <laughs> like, oh my gosh, that needs to change, that needs to change. Like how do you think we should deal with that feeling and like kind of how do we move forward when it feels like we're helpless. I would I would say when moving forward, uh, the important part to recognize is that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself. I think I've said this to, before that yeah. it's it's patternistic. It's something you can draw back on, but it's also something that it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's happening right now. It can be a different situation. I mean, there are some unprecedented things we can point to, such as the United Nations, which did not exist as there's never been any intergovernmental organization on a global level before the United Nations. So there are some things that are unprecedented in human history that are occurring in, in our, our time and space. But that said, I'm, that also makes it a bit more unpredictable because that there's this increased dialogue with the world and that globalization, I wouldn't say is complete. It's 
to the point now where it's at it's reaching a plateau i would say I think that um, your point that human history doesn't always repeat itself, uh, it's in patterns, really. Uh, it reminds me of the quote that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. that's kind of what we're dealing with in this situation, is that we're having a series of events that we can definitely see parallels between. And you can look for them for answers, but the fact is is that they're not pure analogs for what you're, what, what we're dealing with. And that as of right now, we might be dealing with something that we have never, uh, ever faced anything as powerful as this, and we may never have to face it again. If we do the right thing, or if we do the completely wrong thing, we will definitely not have to face it ever again, because we will be gone. Yeah, and I think an important point to make as well is that there, there are, it's a double-edged sword that we're dealing with right now. It can be a good thing that, like I was mentioning, the United Nations and the increased dialogue, the Paris Climate Accords, are a large part of that dialogue and the commitment of cutting carbon emissions. However, at the same time, we have, you know, flashpoint crisis in Hong Kong right now, North Korea, Iran, where conflict can happen. And generally, when we talk about conflict, especially on a global scale or even on a regional scale, it can be devastating and it can change paths very quickly for dialogue and I mean we can just use the League of Nations as an example of that when there's a lack of action to counter that we can see these man-made issues become dominant and climate change will not only take a backseat it may be accelerated. I think that this comes to like a really interesting point of the fact that we're about to enter 2020 and it's going to be a whole new decade. Um, And it always makes me think of this idea that bad things happen very suddenly and good things happen very slowly. Like bad things like death happen very suddenly and often unexpectedly. Um, Something like a a crisis occurring in North Korea happens very suddenly. Um, But good things have been happening very slowly. And I think that as more people realize and learn more about global climate change, we're making those slow, steady steps such as with, uh, with, with the Paris Agreement and uh, with, with every other baby step that we take towards uh, a better future for us and, and the globe. We, we don't always celebrate those little victories because they do feel like they're uh, small moments that we worked so long for. But uh, I think it's better to uh, take the small steps towards um, a good thing than to have to deal with the very bad thing that could occur in the very bad moment that would happen suddenly. And I also think that's part of the reason why it's hard to deal with global climate change, because unlike a lot of bad things that occur uh, where it's sudden, global climate change has been this um, slow-moving bad thing that we have to deal with, which makes it difficult to make its spot on the news when you're dealing with things like fire and... um, politics yeah, in the modern politics. era, <laughs> uh, that it, it struggles to find its time in, in, the, se- in the center stage. Um, but hopefully that'll be something that we can see change in the next 10 years. And I think when we talk about, when we're using the examples of the Irish potato famine, the Dust Bowl, and just history in general, when we talk, talk about all those things, it becomes something where it is that when we say this is a slow-moving problem, I think the human, human society is conditioned for crisis to change and reform during crisis and that climate change is a slow moving crisis very much so so i mean that 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 seems to be our the wrap up of our discussion about the hist- the history of 
crisis crises throughout um, that are natural, that are man-made, and how that connects to climate change. I appreciate you coming today, Jesse. You've been a great help. You've provided invaluable <laughs> information that I, I didn't even know. And that Catherine, I mean, is yeah. also very thankful, I would say. It was great meeting you. I don't often get to think about history as a physicist, so I think it's just very insightful, some of the things you've said, so thank you. Well, thanks for having me today.